Hello and welcome to the Top Story, a podcast with headlines of the day from our correspondents around the world. I'm Tian Yu. Coming up in this edition, the UN chief says a lasting end to the Israel-Palestine conflict can only come through a two-state solution. Former U.S. President Donald Trump has won the New Hampshire Republican primary, and China and Nauru have re-established diplomatic relations. We begin with the Middle East. The UN Secretary General says Israel's rejection of a two-state solution is unacceptable. Antonio Guterres made the remarks during a high-level open debate of the Security Council on the Middle East. He says a lasting end to the Israel-Palestine conflict can only come through the two-state solution. The Palestinian Foreign Affairs Minister called for an urgent international peace conference to uphold international law, but Israel maintains that a ceasefire will keep Hamas in power and said Israel will continue to protect itself. Jody Jacobs has more. It was a packed house inside the UN Security Council chamber on Tuesday. Several foreign ministers participated in the debate on the ongoing crisis in Gaza against the backdrop of Israel's military actions there, a mounting death toll and an escalating humanitarian crisis. Many member states once again called for the war to end. But the overwhelming call was for a two-state solution, with the UN Secretary General saying any refusal to accept a two-state solution to the Israel-Palestinian conflict conflict must be firmly rejected. A lasting end to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict can only come through a two-state solution. Israelis must see their legitimate needs for security materialized and Palestinians must see their legitimate aspirations for a fully independent, viable and sovereign state realized in line with the United Nations resolutions, international law and previous agreements. Israel's occupation must end. Addressing the council here in New York, the Minister of Foreign Affairs for the Observer State of Palestine said the ongoing war is a premeditated effort to inflict maximum pain on the Palestinian population. He has called for an international peace conference with a clear objective of implementing UN resolutions. The international consensus on two states in this land must be upheld in world and deed. There can be no more pretext for endless delay and obstruction. The disregard for Palestinian life, for international law, for the regional and international will to bring about just and lasting peace should no longer be tolerated. We are running out of time. But Israel once again defended the conflict. Israeli Ambassador Gilad Erdogan said if Hamas turned in those responsible for the October 7th attacks on Israel and returned the hostages, the war would end right away. Erdogan went on to question the attendance of Iran in Tuesday's meeting. While serious debate took place about a two-state solution in the Middle East, with Israel and Palestine living side by side, many member states expressed alarm at the dire humanitarian situation in Gaza and the suffering of the people of Palestine, with many continuing the call for an immediate ceasefire. That was Jody Jacobs reporting. Media reports say that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu told his cabinet ministers that it would take six months for the military to finish the third phase of the conflict. International mediation efforts are underway, but they are being held up by differences over how to bring a permanent end to the conflict. John Gambrill with the Associated Press has more from Jerusalem. 
We have seen the deadliest 24 hours for Israeli troops since they launched their ground offensive on the Gaza Strip. What we understand is there were Israeli troops inside of two buildings. They're planting explosives to bring the building down to try to get rid of a potential sniper nest or any other cover for militants there. Now, while they were planting these explosives, the Israeli military says that there was a militant attack that saw someone fire a rocket-propelled grenade at a tank that was supposedly providing those troops cover. In the ensuing explosion, somehow, the explosives that were inside that building detonated, bringing the building down and killing some 21 Israeli troops. Meanwhile, a separate attack killed three more, so that made it 24 dead in that 24-hour period. And it just really shocked Israel. And we saw people looking in shop windows today at televisions, looking at the news, some clearly shocked at what they saw. And it puts new pressure on the government of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. There's been criticisms inside of his war cabinet that there needs to be a ceasefire to try to get those hostages out of Gaza out. And, you know, you have to keep that death toll in relation to what we've seen from the Palestinian side. Since this war began, 25,000 Palestinians have been killed in the Gaza Strip. Some two million more have been displaced. A lot of them have moved south to Khan Yunis, south to Rafah. As of right now, the Israeli military says they've surrounded Khan Yunis as part of their ongoing operation. And this offensive is continuing despite those casualties and despite new negotiations. We don't have clear understanding of what these negotiations are between Hamas and Israel. They appear to be being mediated by Qatar as well as Egypt. They negotiated and helped mediate this past agreement in November that saw dozens of Israeli hostages freed for prisoners in Israeli jails, as well as about a week-long ceasefire that stopped the fighting. This time around, we understand that the Israelis have offered a two-month pause that would see, again, a swap of hostages for prisoners. But Hamas has rejected this. Hamas's position has been, been the same for weeks now, which is the Israelis must end the offensive, must end their airstrikes, and pull all their troops out of the Gaza Strip before any prisoners will be released. Again, that's just putting even more pressure on the Netanyahu government and the hardliners who are with him. We've seen hostage families come into the Israeli parliament. We've seen them camp outside of Netanyahu's home. We've seen them have mass demonstrations calling on him to do more, to have a ceasefire, to get their loved ones out. But as of right now, there's no agreement. And without any agreement, this war looks like it will continue on. That was John Gambrell reporting. In Africa, nearly 50 South African lawyers are preparing a lawsuit against the U.S. and the U.K. governments. They accuse the two countries of complicity in alleged Israeli war crimes against Palestinians. The lawsuit follows a separate case filed by South Africa this month at the International Court of Justice accusing Israel of genocide in Gaza. Yolisa Nyamela has more. The group of lawyers from South Africa and from a number of other countries say they want the United States, the United Kingdom and other countries to be held accountable for being complicit in the crimes committed against Palestinians. In essence, further letters of demand will be written to the different defendants. And I'm talking about Israel. I'm talking about all other countries who are complicit in this attack, not only the United Kingdom and the United States, but internationally. There's so many different countries that were complicit. I can tell you now that one is not excluding from one's consideration even Saudi Arabia, given the fact that they made available their territory as a military base for the United States of America. So the net is going to be cast very broadly. Advocate Khan says the group of lawyers has been writing letters to various countries and to the International Court of Justice 
or ICJ for the past few weeks demanding that Israel and its supporters be prosecuted. The aim of the litigation is for these countries to pay reparations to the Palestinians who are affected by the alleged genocide. We are now eliciting the assistance and we're going to call for this assistance internationally from psychologists, from medical experts, from engineers, from quantity surveyors, from chartered accountants, etc., in order to do a detailed computation insofar as reparation is concerned, dependence claims are concerned, the reconstruction of Gaza is concerned, and what we're hoping for is. We're hoping that the United Kingdom, the United States of America, all those others who are complicit with Israel and all who assisted in various ways in these attacks then team together and they compensate and they rebuild Gaza. The lawyers say the genocide case filed by South Africa against Israel at the ICJ will serve as a guide for their case against the US, UK and other countries supporting Israel. They will begin the process based on the outcome of the ICJ case and possible steps to be taken by the United Nations. That was Yolisa Nyamela reporting. Turning to North America, former U.S. President Donald Trump has won the New Hampshire Republican primary. The tally shows Trump with nearly 55% of the vote ahead of his rival Nikki Haley, former U.S. representative at the U.N. Incumbent President Joe Biden won the Democratic primary. Philip Crowther with the Associated Press has more. Well, it looks like a pretty handsome result, this one, for the uh, former president. Probably it's going to be around the 10% mark in terms of his advantage over his former ambassador at the United Nations, uh, Nikki Haley. So what this is going to give uh, Donald Trump is two primary wins in a row. The one last week at the caucuses in Iowa was a very significant win with over 50% uh, of the vote for Donald Trump. And the same is going to happen here in New Hampshire. This was a two-person race between... Trump and Haley, and this was also supposed to be, well, essentially her last chance to really get back into this race to possibly win her first primary here in New Hampshire and then move on to other wins. But really what this shows is that Donald Trump, barring any huge surprises, is marching on toward the nomination for the Republican Party to go up against U.S. President Joe Biden in November. Now, Nikki Haley has given her speech at her election night party here in New Hampshire. She's clearly decided to stay in the race for now, at least, to move on to the next primary contest. That, by the way, is in South Carolina. That is her state. That is where she was governor. It is a whole month away, though, and a month is a very long time in U.S. politics. The pressure will increase from Donald Trump's supporters, from his campaign as well, for her to leave this race as quickly as possible and to essentially concede to Donald Trump. So there's still a long race to go. South Carolina in one month's time, Super Tuesday also still to come when a lot of states will be voting. By that time, it looks like there might just be one candidate left in the race former President Donald Trump, who was, by the way, asked, or rather it was Nikki Haley who demanded that he take part in a debate with her. He didn't have a reply to that, but it's very unlikely that Donald Trump is going to agree to any kind of debate with his former ambassador to the United Nations. He has so far decided not to take part in any of these debates during the series of Republican primaries. That was Philip Crowther reporting. In Europe, the latest Russian strikes throughout Ukraine have killed at least 18 people and injured over 130 others. Thousands were left without power. Megumi Lim has more. 
Ukraine's two biggest cities, Kyiv and Kharkiv, were hit by Russian missile strikes during the early hours on Tuesday. The regions of Dnipropetrovsk and Sumy were also targeted. Ukraine's air force said about half of the 41 missiles launched by Russia were shot down by air defense, but falling debris and blast waves caused damage to several residential buildings and energy infrastructure. Air raid sirens were heard in Kyiv overnight ahead of the incoming missile attack. Rescue workers dug through rubble at a destroyed residential building in Kharkiv to search for survivors. According to the mayor, 30 apartment buildings were damaged. 11,000 people were also left without power in Kharkiv after the strikes damaged several structures, the energy ministry said. Over the nearly two-year-old conflict, Russia has carried out regular airstrikes against cities far behind Ukrainian front lines, and Kyiv has repeatedly called for more advanced air defense systems from its Western partners. Officials here said earlier this month that Ukraine is facing a shortage of anti-aircraft guided missiles. They acknowledged the interception rate of airstrikes has gone down compared to previous months. The Kremlin commented on the attacks Tuesday, saying Russia doesn't target civilian areas and that the strikes were carried out against Ukraine's military production facilities. That was Megumi Lim reporting. Turkish lawmakers have approved a long-delayed bill on Sweden's bid to become the 32nd member of NATO. The approval coincides with the launch of NATO's largest military exercises in decades. Michal Bardavid has more. The General Assembly in Turkey, where President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's ruling alliance holds a majority, has voted in favor of Sweden's NATO membership bid. With this parliamentary vote, Erdogan is expected to sign it into law in the upcoming days. The parliament discussion on Sweden's NATO membership lasted about four hours. The bill was backed by the ruling AK party, the nationalist MHP and the main opposition CHP. It was rejected by the opposition nationalist and Islamist parties. Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson welcomed the Turkish parliament's decision and stated that Sweden is one step closer to full membership in NATO on social media platform X. When Sweden and Finland both applied for NATO membership in 2022, in a major shift in their security policy, Turkey had raised objections, citing concerns over their support for Kurdish groups it considers terrorists. Following some negotiations, Finland's membership was ratified by Ankara in March of last year, which paved the way for it to become a member on April 4th. In an effort to address Turkey's concerns, Stockholm introduced a new anti-terrorism bill in 2023 that criminalizes membership to a terrorist organization. Sweden, along with Finland, also lifted some arms restrictions on Turkey. Meanwhile, Ankara also expects the United States Congress to approve the sale of 40 F-16 fighter jets following its endorsement of Sweden to join NATO. This was also discussed with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken during his recent visit to Istanbul. The decision leaves Hungary as the only NATO member state yet to approve Sweden's accession. But on Tuesday, Hungary's Prime Minister has announced that he has invited his Swedish counterpart to negotiate Sweden's entry to the bloc. An expansion to NATO requires a unanimous approval of its 31 member states. That was Michal Bardavid reporting. Finally, in China, China and Nauru have re-established diplomatic ties. The two foreign ministers signed a joint communique on the resumption of bilateral diplomatic relations at the ambassadorial level in Beijing. Dong Xie has more. 
foreign ministers from China and Nauru has signed a joint communique uh, on the resumption of diplomatic ties in Beijing here right behind me in these podiums to re-establish the diplomatic relations between the People's Republic of China and the Republic of Nauru. With the move marking uh, Nauru, the 183rd countries established diplomatic relations with China. When Nauru's foreign minister earlier said here that its government recognized that there is but one China in the world, that's the government of the People's Republic of China, being the sole legal government representing the whole of China, and Taiwan is an inalienable part of China's territory. What he said, and I quote, we look forward to this new chapter of relationship between Nauru and China. It will be built on strength, built on development strategy. It will also have a synergy of policies, and we will have good collaboration and shared governmental principles that both our countries will enjoy. Well, obviously, both sides have expressed willingness to the practical cooperation that's going to happen between Nauru and China. Well, the prospect is bright. The horizon is full of light, as the Nauru foreign minister has put it. Well, China's foreign minister Wang Yi said, well, this move again demonstrates that the one China principle is in line with the global trends as well as the arc of history. And there is one, but only one China in this world. We look forward to working with Nauru to deepen political mutual trust, facilitate mutually beneficial cooperation and the friendship between the two peoples, and pushing bilateral relations to a higher level. And Nauru's foreign minister has also uh, said he was amazed how fabulous development, development of China's Guangzhou city is. And he's looking forward to his trip to Shanghai soon. And he would like to uh, share all the uh, developments with China as well. That was Dong Xue reporting. A leading delegation of Japanese business leaders is in Beijing for the first time in four years. The group will hold talks with officials and business leaders. Chen Ziyuan has more. A delegation led by the head of the Japan-China Economic Association, Shindo Kose, begins a visit to China, the first trip to China by the organization since 2019. More than 200 representatives from the economic field are in the delegation. We consider China an important economic cooperation partner for Japan and we hope to strengthen the ties. A welcoming banquet was held on Tuesday evening. The China Council for the Promotion of International Trade hosted the event. The Japan-China Economic Association had sent a delegation to Beijing almost once a year since 1975, but it was suspended for the pandemic. The delegation will be in Beijing for four days. They are expected to meet with Chinese officials to discuss economic issues. The business leaders say they will use the opportunity to witness China's rapid growth firsthand. Chinese President Xi Jinping and Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida have agreed on building a strategic and mutually beneficial partnership between the two countries. This visit is a timely event for us to promote and build good cooperation. The business leaders say they cherish the business ties between China and Japan and hope to use this visit to fulfill plans agreed upon by both countries' leaders, deepening cooperation in digital economy, green development finance and elderly care. That was Chen Ziyuan reporting. Recapping today's headlines. The UN chief says a lasting end to the Israel-Palestine conflict can only come through a two-state solution. Former U.S. President Donald Trump has won the New Hampshire Republican primary. And China and Nauru have re-established diplomatic relations. 
And that's it for this edition of the Top Story, a podcast that brings you world headlines every weekday. For more news in politics, business, sports, and culture, you can subscribe to the Beijing Hour, a one-hour podcast news magazine program. We welcome and appreciate all ratings and reviews. I'm Tian Yu. Thank you for listening.